All right, and welcome to another episode of the Geek Spin Podcast. Today, we're going to be speaking with Adam Stemple, formerly of Cats Laughing, Boiled and Lead, and his own solo work. We're going to talk to him about growing up as the son of Jane Yolen, music, Winnipeg Folk Fest, and his writing. So sit back and strap in, because the show is a go. You have my sword, her bow, and their phaser. You have our dragon, her wand, his lightsaber. You have their special dice, her sonic screwdriver. We are united by what we love. We are united by what we All right, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Geek Spin Podcast. This is your host, The Cory Geek, and today I am very excited to be speaking with musician Adam Stemple, formerly of Cats Laughing, Boiled in Lead, solo work, novelizations, and various other things. Adam, welcome. <laughs> Hi there, how you doing? I am doing excellent. All right, so getting right into it... Um, how did you get your start as a musician? Um, at six years old, my mother asked me, what instrument would you like to play? And uh, the, that was the question. It was not, would you like to play an instrument? I was not given that choice. Uh, so I, of course, picked cello, because I'm that guy. And uh, played cello for about uh, eight years, uh, full Suzuki method and everything. Uh, and then switched over to piano. And then um, eventually I uh, cut off the tip of my uh, index finger with a broken beer bottle uh, accidentally and didn't know if I would actually ever play the piano again. It was a little cliche there. And, I, and I, uh, so I switched to guitar uh, and then I never looked back. But for, uh, for the first probably five years, I played guitar. I held my pick between my uh, thumb and middle finger because uh, I had, because uh, I couldn't really use the tip of my index finger, and didn't learn to finger pick for about ten years. And you've been uh, playing that ever since. Um, do you still play uh, cello or piano at all? Uh, I play piano. I don't play cello. Cello turns out if you don't practice that, that goes away pretty quick. Um, I yeah. can still hold a bow, and I've I've found that you know even after eight years, I was talking with a fiddle player in one of my bands last night about uh, how much easier things are with frets. And even <laughs> as, as a 14-year-old kid I playing cello, I still had the little tape showing me where the, uh, lion, where the right place to put my fingers were on the cello. So turns out I really like frets. <laughs> so how did you uh, get into playing uh, Celtic rock? It was, uh, you know, I was playing in... Cat's Laughing, and um, got exposed to Boiled and Lead. Actually, first time saw them at um, at Minicon. So there was already uh, kind of a connection between the uh, <clears throat> fantasy and sci-fi community um, and and the music, aside from, you know, playing in Cat's Laughing with Steve Bruce and Emma Bull. Um, and got, kind of got turned on to the Celtic rock that way. Uh, and then I had uh, a lot of friends played out at uh, Renaissance Festival, uh, and they played in the Irish Cottage, played a lot of Irish music. Uh, so I got exposed to it that way. 
Um, listened to a lot of folk music growing up, and um, I'm going to blank on the name now. Fairport Convention. Uh, my folks were a big fan of that. So I kind of had it coming from all sides. And so when it came time to uh, join Boiled and Lead and later the Timbaloys, I ended up just playing a lot of Celtic music and just kind of slipped into that. You know, and yeah, I've always like had a very broad uh, liking of all different kinds of music. So I've always been open to playing uh, any kind of music. Boiled and Lead was kind of perfect for that because we'd play just music from all over the world. Yeah, everything from uh, Hungary to uh, Ireland to a little bit of uh, punk rock. We called it uh, ethno-gothic sludge jazz. <laughs> Which is a very, very niche uh, market. <laughs> Uh, how did uh, Cats Laughing come about? I mean, uh, you know, two fairly big names in uh, fantasy writing, uh, Emma Bull and uh, Stephen Bruce. Where did you first meet up with them? I met up with them at um, at uh, Minicon. Uh, I actually, you know, my mother is a writer and they're writers and I kind of met them that way. I actually narrowly missed uh, meeting Steve when I was 18 I was actually just driving through. I was a, I was a, uh, let's call it an aimless team, teen, uh, and I uh, left Massachusetts uh, and drove out to uh, visit and stay with some friends uh, in Central California. And I actually drove through Minneapolis, and I was gonna. I hadn't met Steve, but I, I he was a friend of my mom's, and I was gonna stay over there. Uh, and I just kind of swung through town, called the house. He wasn't there. Uh, so I was sick of being cold. It was November, and I was in Minneapolis about noon, and I didn't sleep till I hit New Mexico. So then, <laughs> a year after, I actually went to uh, Minicon, and basically didn't sleep and stayed up in the con suite uh, playing music for three days straight. Uh, and after that, Steve said, "Hey, if you if you come back out here, uh, we'll start a band." And I said, "Okay." And I think he was quite surprised when a month later I, I showed up with, you know, everything I owned in the back of a pickup truck, which was basically four guitars and an amplifier and a, a, a change of clothes and said, all right, I'm here. Let's do it. So we, we threw together a band, uh, Emma, Emma to sing, uh, Lojo, who was just a great uh, vocalist and all around instrumentalist uh, on the bass, a guy named Bill Kosher is the other guitarist and... Uh, who, who Steve knew through uh, kind of the Grateful Dead community, uh, and then Steve on drums, and that's how it came about.
just this once What signal and what's noise This once, what signal and what's Did you uh, play in bands uh, before Cats Laughing? And what type of music were you making before that? There was uh, very little opportunity for bands in Hatfield, Massachusetts. Town of 3,000 people. Um, there was the Iron Horse had not opened yet in Northampton, Massachusetts, uh, which is a very hip place to play uh now and from like kind of the 90s onwards but in uh you know in 1987 there was pretty much zero opportunities um so i was in a couple little bands but it had never really uh played out anywhere a couple of drunken house parties when i was 16 you know that kind of deal but uh nothing really nothing really of note um till i moved out here to an act to an actual city Though people on the East Coast don't actually believe that. I still can't find it on a map. <laughs> if you ever come to Winnipeg, you'll know what a small city looks like. I have been to Winnipeg. I played the Winnipeg Folk have Festival you? with Boiled and Lead uh, twice. Yes, I have a Winnipeg Folk Festival uh, story, if you like. And it's this is actually the, uh, you know, the entire... The entire history... I have a very fraught history with uh, Boiled and Lead. Uh the band I was in for 12 years. And this kind of encapsulates the whole experience of Boiled and Lead. Um, so we are, we play, we are playing Winnipeg Folk Festival. We, uh, it's 9 p.m. Friday night, uh, main stage. Uh, we, like everyone else, are allowed uh, a 20-minute set. 20-minute uh, set, um, one encore. That's what you get. I don't care if you're a, a, a local folk duo who only plays coffee houses or you're the, you know, the Elvis of Eastern Europe or you're actually Elvis. You get 20 minutes, one uh, encore, no, uh, no substitutions. So we go up there. Uh, we play our set. Now, you've been to Winnipeg Folk Festival, right? I have to admit that I have not. Oh, my goodness. It's fantastic. 20 years of saying that I will go, and I just never quite managed to get around to it. <laughs> well, 
it is it is magnificent. It's a it is the best run festival I've ever played. Um, fantastic. Can't say enough great things about it. Just uh, from the you know from the the people I've talked to in the audience um, perspective and from the the backstage uh, musician perspective, just wonderful at all levels. Um, and I really like their egalitarian approach as well. It's you know that's an international festival. So you can't, you, you know, they don't judge anyone because they don't, you know, if you're invited, that's, that's, you get, everyone is equal in that way. Well treated, but no one's above anyone else. Because just because no one's heard of you here doesn't mean you aren't, like I said, the, uh, you know, the, the, the Elvis of Yugoslavia, you know, but so it's a, it's very interesting. But anyway, so we, um, so we hit the stage. Now in Winnipeg, generally like a folk festival, there's some dancing out in the in the kind of wings, but most of the front are are the the people and you know and more middle aged people and families kind of setting up shop for the weekend with the chairs and sitting down, you know. So we hit the stage and we start with a very thumping uh, song called "Hide My Track" uh, off of uh, "Songs from the Gypsy" that. Um, that started with Robin on the big Turkish war drum, and then in the in the middle of the song, uh, right before the solo, he moves to his giant drum kit. Um, and and but it's a very thump thump thump, very hopping song. And so we start it, and Robin moves up to the drum set, and I kind of look out at the crowd, and now, not just the wings are filled with dancing people, like half to three quarters of the way out. Now everyone has rushed forward and is and they're all uh pogoing jumping up and down in time to the music so we got about you know fifteen thousand out of the eighteen twenty thousand people there are now dancing like it's a giant rock concert so we're having we're having a great time so we play our 20 minute set all right we get our one one encore and we come out and play uh step it out mary so this is a, a traditional irish folk song but completely uh metal with this big and i'm playing just huge uh distorted power chords on the strat um and it's in a big drop d tuning so we get to the last big ending chord dump bump bum and i uh i time it so i just fall flat over backwards arms out wide no hands on the guitar so that when i hit the stage at the same time as the big crash of the drums the guitar uh, bounces off my chest and rings that giant uh, D chord without me having to hit it. All right. So it works great. Crowd goes crazy. Unfortunately, also, the guitar jumps up and cracks me in the mouth, splits my lip wide open. All right. But this was at a stage of my life. I was young. I was still drinking. I was quite wild. And I had a little saying which said, uh, it was kind of very punk rock in that, I said, if you're not bleeding at the end of it, it wasn't a good show. So it was not uncommon for me to end a gig, um, you know, it covered in my own blood or someone else's. I wasn't particular. So, so we go off stage and I'm thinking, well, this is a great show. And everyone seemed to agree because people, uh, someone, someone got me a rag with ice. So I'm pressing that to my, to my uh, lip. And the crowd, uh, there's a crowd of, of just producers and A&R people and agents are just pressing their cards into, into our hands. All right. Huge, huge uh, show backstage. And Drew, the bass player, comes up to me and says, Adam, we got to do a second encore. 
And I laugh because I'm covered in blood and I happen to know we're not allowed a second encore. Um, but it turns out the crowd had just gone so crazy uh, that the, uh, you know, the runners of the show hadn't seen anything like that before. They're like, no, get out there and do a second encore. So we go do a second encore. Now I'm out there. I, I put on my acoustic guitar because I know my electric is now hopelessly out of tune. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to spend the time tuning it. So I strap on the two. So now we're doing a set of traditional jigs and reels. And I go to the front of the stage, strumming madly on my acoustic guitar, blood spraying from my <laughs> from my lip. I'm wearing a I'm wearing a white peasant shirt, which is now covered in blood. Mm-hmm. And photographers are clamoring to the front of the stage because a KISS concert has has broken out at Winnipeg Folk Festival. All right. So we go backstage and now now we come come to the tragic twist ending, which encapsulates the entire uh, 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 tragic arc of my time in Boiled and Lead. Um, Because we go from this, where we now have a pile of cards from from producers and A and R people and and people in the industry, uh, who are just, who we blew away at the show. All right. Uh, on Monday we drive back from Winnipeg Folk Festival. We call none of those people, not a single person on those cards. Do we ring up, and we play Lee's a place called Lee's Liquor Lounge for two hundred dollars, <laughs> and that is boiled and lead. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic! So that's that's my twelve that's my twelve years in that. Yeah. <laughs> I got no home. I can't go back to. I got no one to call a friend. I can't find. Place I started, and I can only guess how it will end. So keep them hounds off my trail, jailers off my back. Get these bracelets off of me. The rain to hide my track. There's no escape in the job. I'm so dry. a place to let my head down I need to find some time to think so keep them hounds off my trail jailers on my back bracelets off of me little rain to hide my track
so how did you actually get first uh be invited to uh, join boiled and lead um i was a i was a working musician i was around i mean it's just a matter of of keeping yourself busy i was in a hard rock band called um poetic justice which you know was just a working rock band uh, i tur- toured up and down uh uh you know uh you know the five state area would drive out to vegas uh about every other or every third gig was at a strip club uh that you know there would be dancers and then we'd go up on stage uh, you know uh much to most of the people's dismay because you know we were clothed and men you know but it was just a working rock band traveling back and forth you know making a little bit of you know just working uh and then i uh knew knew robin he was a he was a friend and so when uh and actually todd when todd quit the band he was uh actually living at my house for a month um while his girlfriend figured out whether she wanted to keep him or the cat uh, because he was deathly allergic she ended up keeping him which I, i maintain was a mistake (laughs) <laughs> but so but uh so they uh you know so he he left the band and they uh invited me to try out and I was I was actually uh listening to the tapes so I'd be you know I'd be in the in the hotel room or the or the band room on the road uh playing klezmer music and then I'd go down and be playing uh uh you know Metallica and uh and uh, Alice in Chains, you know, at night and then come back and learn some traditional tunes. But it actually, you know, that's kind of the both sides of Boils and Lead. So it actually uh, worked out. So it was just kind of, you know, you know, I was there and a logical choice. I sang and played, played guitar, a little bit of mandolin. Antler Dance was uh, the first album that I was actually introduced to for uh, Boils and Lead. So, you know, kicking right off. Oh, all right. Fury Highwaymen was just, (laughs) it just blew me away. Oh, yeah. From that point on, I was you know pretty much hooked. Now I wanted to talk to you about uh, the Gypsy, uh, Stephen Bruce's uh, novel, mm-hmm. um, and music uh, written by yourself and uh, Stephen Bruce as well, uh, with an album uh, recorded by Boiled and Lead. How did that all come about? Well, it's interesting. It's interesting because we got to first uh, you know recognize that that was that was what Steve and I started writing those tunes probably in the late eighties, uh, uh, unaware. Uh, that uh, that Gypsy uh, was a, was a slur for the R- R- Romani people. Yeah. So I mean, the whole thing, in a way, has aged poorly. Yes. Um, but what what happened was Steve and I were writing. Uh, you know, we were writing, you know, real honestly, uh, at times three to four songs a day, um, just writing crazy amounts of music. Um, a lot of the time for uh, cats laughing, and a lot of times just for for our own sake. Um, and we started to realize that some of these songs seem to be connected uh, in some way uh, through this through this one character. Um, and so we just kept uh, kept on writing them, and then when we thought they fit in, we'd add them to the suite of songs. Uh, and then. You know, years later, uh, he and Megan Lindholm, who's uh, who is an absolutely brilliant writer, uh, and a lot of people might know her as Robin Hobb uh, now, 
and uh, just absolutely. If you have you ever read uh, Wizard of the Pigeons? No, I have not. I think the only uh, one of her books I've uh, read has been The Gypsy. Gotcha. Well, the um, Wizard of the Pigeons is honestly, to me, one of the seminal works of urban fantasy, <clears throat> along with Charles DeLint's stuff and Emma's War for the Oaks. All right, and welcome to another episode of the Geekspin Podcast. Today, we're going to be speaking with Adam Stemple, formerly of Cats Laughing, Boiled and Lead, and his own solo work. We're going to talk to him about growing up as the son of Jane Yolen, music, Winnipeg Folk Fest, and his writing. So sit back and strap in, because the show is a go. You have my sword, her bow, and their phaser. You have our dragon, her wand, his lightsaber. You have their special dice, her sonic screwdriver. We are united by what we love. We are united by what we love. All right, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Geek Spin Podcast. This is your host, the Cory Geek, and today I am very excited to be speaking with musician Adam Stemple, formerly of Cats Laughing, Boiled in Lead, solo work, novelizations, and various other things. Adam, welcome. <laughs> Hi there, how you doing? I am doing excellent. All right, so getting right into it, um, how did you get your start as a musician? Um, at six years old, my mother asked me, what instrument would you like to play? And uh, the, that was the question. It was not, would you like to play an instrument? I was not given that choice. Uh, so I, of course, picked cello, because I'm that guy. And uh, played cello for about uh, eight years, uh, full Suzuki method and everything. Uh, and then switched over to piano. And then um, eventually I uh, cut off the tip of my uh, index finger with a broken beer bottle. Uh, accidentally, and didn't know if I would actually ever play the piano again. It was a little cliche there, and I and I uh, so I switched to guitar, uh, and then I never looked back. But for uh, for the first probably five years, I played guitar. I held my pick between my uh, thumb and middle finger because uh, I had because uh, I couldn't really use the tip of my index finger, and didn't learn to finger pick for about ten years. And you've been uh, playing that ever since. Um, do you still play uh, cello or piano at all? Uh, I play piano. I don't play cello. Cello turns out if you don't practice that, that goes away pretty quick. Um, I yeah. can still hold a bow. And I've I've found that, you know, even after eight years, I was talking with a fiddle player in one of my bands last night about uh, how much easier things are with frets. And even <laughs> as, as a 14-year-old kid, I still playing cello i still had the little tape showing me where the uh lion where the right place to put my fingers were on the cello so turns out i really like frets <laughs> so how did you uh, get into playing uh celtic rock it was uh you know i was playing in cats laughing and um got exposed to boiled and lead actually first time saw them at um uh, at minicon so there was already uh, kind of a connection between the uh, <clears throat> fantasy and sci-fi community um, 
and and the music, aside from you know playing in Cats Laughing with Steve Bruce and Emma Bull, um, and got, kind of got turned on to the Celtic rock that way. Uh, and then I had uh, a lot of friends played out at uh, Renaissance Festival, uh, and they played in the Irish Cottage, played a lot of Irish music. Uh, so I got exposed to it that way. Um, listened to a lot of folk music growing up, and um, I'm going to blank on the name now. Fairport Convention. Uh, my folks were a big fan of that. So I kind of had it coming from all sides. And so when it came time to uh, join Boiled and Lead and later the Timbaloys, I ended up just playing a lot of Celtic music and just kind of slipped into that. You know, and yeah, I've always like had a very broad uh, liking of all different kinds of music. So I've always been open to playing uh, any kind of music. Boiled and Lead was kind of perfect for that because we'd play just music from all over the world. Yeah, everything from uh, Hungary to... Uh... Ireland to a little bit of uh, punk rock. We called it uh, ethno-gothic sludge jazz. <laughs> which is a very, very niche uh, market. Uh, how did uh, Cats Laughing come about? I mean, uh, you know, two fairly big names in uh, fantasy writing, uh, Emma Bull and uh, Stephen Bruce. Where did you first meet up with them? I met up with them at, um, at uh, Minicon. Uh, I actually, you know, my mother is a writer and they're writers and I kind of met them that way. I actually narrowly missed uh, meeting Steve when I was 18. I was actually just driving through. I was a, I was a uh, let's call it an aimless team, teen, uh, and I uh, left Massachusetts uh, and drove out to uh, visit and stay with some friends uh, in Central California. And I actually drove through Minneapolis and I was going to, I hadn't met Steve, but I, I, he was a friend of my mom's and I was going to stay over there. Uh, and I just kind of swung through town, called the house. He wasn't there. Uh, so I was sick of being cold. It was November and I was in Minneapolis about noon and I didn't sleep till I hit New Mexico. So then <laughs> a year after I actually went to uh, Minicon and basically didn't sleep and stayed up in the con suite uh, playing music for three days straight. Uh, and after that, Steve said, hey, if you, if you come back out here, uh, we'll start a band. And I said, okay. And I think he was quite surprised when a month later I, I showed up with, you know, everything I owned in the back of a pickup truck, which was basically four guitars and an amplifier and a, a, a change of clothes and said, all right, I'm here. Let's do it. So we, we threw together a band, uh, Emma, Emma to sing, uh, Lojo, who is just a great uh, vocalist and all-around instrumentalist uh, on the bass, a guy named Bill Kilsher is the other guitarist, and uh, who, who Steve knew through uh, kind of the Grateful Dead community, uh, and then Steve on drums, and that's how it came about. Thank you. 
drinking coffee Have to stay awake and think of you Aching awfully Knowing my perceptions aren't true I've made you Not as your acts betrayed you How could I keep away But things still lead me on A word and then it's gone What lives here and what's strange Tell me please What signal and what's noise Interference Or is that the broadcast that I've got Your appearance Renders me incapable of thought Here's your voice on the phone Your sweet and sullen tone What am I to believe? Did you blow me a kiss or was that just tape hiss? When I hang up, will you agree? Have pity now. What signal and what's noise?
signal and watch snow Did you uh, play in bands uh, before Cats Laughing? And what type of music were you making before that? There was uh, very little opportunity for bands in Hatfield, Massachusetts, a town of 3,000 people. Um, there was the Iron Horse had not opened yet in Northampton, Massachusetts, uh, which is a very hip place to play uh now and from like kind of the 90s onwards but in uh you know in 1987 there was pretty much zero opportunities um so i was in a couple little bands but it had never really uh played out anywhere a couple of how drunken house parties when i was 16 you know that kind of deal but uh nothing really nothing really of note um till i moved out here to an act to an actual city Though people on the East Coast don't actually believe that. I still can't find it on a map. <laughs> if you ever come to Winnipeg, you'll know what a small city looks like. I have been to Winnipeg. I played the Winnipeg Folk have Festival you? with Boiled and Lead uh, twice. Yes, I have a Winnipeg Folk Festival uh, story, if you like. And it's this is actually the, uh, you know, the entire... The entire history... I have a very fraught history with uh, Boiled and Lead. Uh the band I was in for 12 years. And this kind of encapsulates the whole experience of Boiled and Lead. Um, so we are, we play, we were playing Winnipeg Folk Festival. We, uh, it's 9 p.m. Friday night, uh, main stage. Uh, we, like everyone else, are allowed uh, a 20 minute set, uh, 20 minute set, um, one encore. That's what you get. I don't care if you're a, a, a local folk duo who only plays coffee houses or you're the, you know, the Elvis of Eastern Europe or you're actually Elvis. You get 20 minutes, one uh, encore, no, uh, no substitutions. So we go up there. Uh, we play our set. Now, you've been to Winnipeg Folk Festival, right? I have to admit that I have not. Oh, my goodness. It's fantastic. 20 years of saying that I will go, and I just never quite managed to get around to it. <laughs> well, it is it is magnificent. It's a, it is the best-run festival I've ever played. Um, fantastic. Can't say enough great things about it. Just uh, from the, you know, from the, the people I've talked to in the audience, um perspective and from the the backstage uh musician perspective just wonderful at all levels um and i really like their egalitarian approach as well it's you know that's an international festival so you can't you, you know they don't judge anyone because they don't you know if you're invited that's that's 
you get everyone is equal in that way. Well treated, but no one's above anyone else. Because just because no one's heard of you here doesn't mean you aren't, like I said, the, uh, you know, the, the, the Elvis of Yugoslavia. You know, but so it's, a, it's very interesting. But anyway, so we, um, so we hit the stage. Now, in Winnipeg, generally, like a folk festival, there's some dancing out in the, in the kind of wings. But most of the front are, are the, the people and, you know, and more middle-aged people and families kind of setting up shop for the weekend with the chairs and sitting down. You know, so we hit the stage and we start with a very thumping uh, song called Hide My Track uh, off of uh, Songs from the Gypsy that um, that started with Robin on the big Turkish war drum. And then in the in the middle of the song, uh, right before the solo, he moves to his giant drum kit. Um, and and but it's a very thump, 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 very hopping song. And so we start it, and Robin moves up to the drum set, and I kind of look out at the crowd, and now not just the wings are filled with dancing people, like half to three-quarters of the way out now, everyone has rushed forward, and is, and they're all uh, pogoing, jumping up and down in time to the music. So we got about, you know, 15,000 out of the 18,000, 20,000 people there are now dancing like it's a giant rock concert. So we're having, we're having a great time. So we play our 20-minute set, all right? We get our one, one encore, and we come out and play uh, Step It Out, Mary. So this is a, a traditional Irish folk song, but completely uh, metal with this big, and I'm playing just huge uh, distorted power chords on the Strat, um, and it's in a big drop D tuning. So we get to the last big ending chord, dump bump bum, and I uh, I time it so I just fall flat over backwards, arms out wide, no hands on the guitar, so that when I hit the stage, at the same time as the big crash of the drums, the guitar uh, bounces off my chest and rings that giant uh, D chord without me having to hit it. All right. So it works great. Crowd goes crazy. Unfortunately, also the guitar jumps up, and cracks me in the mouth, splits my lip wide open, all right? But this was at a stage of my life, I was young, I was still drinking, I was quite wild, and I had a little saying which said, uh, it was kind of very punk rock in that, I said, if you're not bleeding at the end of it, it wasn't a good show. So it was not uncommon for me to end a gig, um, you know, it covered in my own blood, or someone else's. I wasn't particular. So... So we go off stage, and I'm thinking, well, this is a great show. And everyone seemed to agree because people, uh, someone, someone got me a rag with ice, so I'm pressing that to my, to my uh, lip. And the crowd, uh, there's a crowd of, of just producers and A&R people and agents are just pressing their cards into, into our hands. All right, huge, huge uh, show backstage. And Drew, the bass player, comes up to me and says, Adam, we got to do a second encore. And I laugh because I'm covered in blood and I happen to know we're not allowed a second encore. Um, but it turns out the crowd had just gone so crazy uh, that the, uh, you know, the runners of the show hadn't seen anything like that before. They're like, no, get out there and do a second encore. So we go do a second encore. Now I'm out there. I, I put on my acoustic guitar because I know my electric is now hopelessly out of tune. Mm -hmm. and I don't want to spend the time tuning it. So I strap on the two. So now we're doing a set of traditional jigs and reels. And I go to the front of the stage 
strumming madly on my acoustic guitar, blood spraying from my <laughs> from my lip. I'm wearing a I'm wearing a white peasant shirt, which is now covered in blood. Mm-hmm. And photographers are clamoring to the front of the stage because a Kiss concert has has broken out at Winnipeg Folk <laughs> Festival. All right. So we go backstage, and now, now we come the we come to the tragic twist ending, okay. which encapsulates the entire uh, 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 tragic arc of my time in Boiled and Lead, um, because we go from this, where we now have a pile of cards from from producers and A and R people and and people in the industry uh, who are just, who we blew away at the show. All right. Uh, on Monday, we drive back from Winnipeg Folk Festival. We call none of those people, not a single person on those cards, do we ring up, and we play Lee's, a place called Lee's Liquor Lounge for $200. <laughs> and that is boiled and lead. Oh, that's fantastic. So that's, that's, my, 12, that's my 12 years in that video. <laughs>
so how did you actually get first uh be invited to uh, join boiled and lead um i was a i was a working musician i was around i mean it's just a matter of of keeping yourself busy i was in a hard rock band called um poetic justice which you know was just a working rock band uh, i tur- toured up and down uh uh you know uh you know the five state area would drive out to vegas uh about every other or every third gig was at a strip club uh that you know there would be dancers and then we'd go up on stage uh, you know uh much to most of the people's dismay because you know we were clothed and men you know but it was just a working rock band tra- traveling back and forth you know making a little bit of you know just working uh, and then I uh, knew knew Robin. He was a he was a friend. And so when uh, and actually Todd, when Todd quit the band, he was uh, actually living at my house for a month um, while his girlfriend figured out whether she wanted to keep him or the cat because uh, he was deathly allergic. She ended up keeping him, which I, I maintain was a mistake. But <laughs> so but uh, so. They, uh, you know, so he, he left the band and they, uh, invited me to try out and I was, I was actually, uh, listening to the tapes. So I'd be, you know, I'd be in the, in the hotel room or the, or the band room on the road, uh, playing klezmer music. And then I'd go down and be playing, uh, uh, you know, Metallica and, uh, and, uh, Alice in Chains, you know, at night and then come back and learn some traditional tunes. But it actually, you know, that's kind of the both sides of Boils and Lead. So it actually uh, worked out. So it was just kind of, you know, you know, I was there and a logical choice. I sang and played, played guitar, a little bit of mandolin. Antler Dance was uh, the first album that I was actually introduced to for uh, Boils and Lead. So, you know, kicking right off. Oh, all right. Fury Highwaymen was just, (laughs) it just blew me away. yeah. From that point on, I was you know pretty much hooked. Now I wanted to talk to you about uh, the Gypsy, uh, Stephen Bruce's uh, novel, mm-hmm. um, and music uh, written by yourself and uh, Stephen Bruce as well, uh, with an album uh, recorded by Boiled and Lead. How did that all come about? Well, it's interesting. It's interesting because we had to first uh, you know recognize that that was that was what Steve and I started writing those tunes probably in the late eighties, uh, uh, unaware. Uh, that uh, that Gypsy uh, was a, was a slur for the R- R- Romani people. Yeah. So I mean, the whole thing, in a way, has aged poorly. Yes. Um, but what what happened was Steve and I were writing. Uh, you know, we were writing, you know, real honestly, uh, at times three to four songs a day, um, just writing crazy amounts of music. Um, a lot of the time for uh, cats laughing, and a lot of times just for for our own sake. Um, and we started to realize that some of these songs seem to be connected uh, in some way uh, through this through this one character. Um, and so we just kept uh, kept on writing them, and then when we thought they fit in, we'd add them to the suite of songs. Uh, and then. You know, years later, uh, he and Megan Lindholm, who's uh, who is an absolutely brilliant writer, uh, and a lot of people might know her as Robin Hobb uh, now, and 
uh, just absolutely. If you, have you ever read uh, Wizard of the Pigeons? No, I have not. I think the only uh, one of her books I've uh, read has been The Gypsy. Gotcha. Well, the um, Wizard of the Pigeons is honestly, to me, one of the seminal works of urban fantasy, <clears throat> along with Charles DeLint's stuff and Emma's War for the Oaks. Uh, Wizard of the Pigeons is just a, a, an astounding book. She's a great writer. And Stephen, so Steve and her wrote uh, the actual story uh, around this suite of songs. And then, um, you know, and then after that, uh, while I was in Boyle and Len, we were kind of looking for a next project. Uh, I put some funding together and then we recorded a number of the songs. And then for what was actually fairly... Uh, groundbreaking at the time and actually got us on a little mention on CNN. Um, we put the entire text of the novel on the CD as well. It was a CD-ROM as well. Uh, so there were also ways to, to, I recorded a whole bunch of little snippets of the other songs that were the heads, lyrics that were the head of the chapters. So if you're reading the book on the, on the CD-ROM, you could click on those and hear uh, snippets of these other songs that we'd never actually recorded but had been written. So it was a very fun and interesting uh, project that, you know, ended up costing costing me a fair amount of money, but uh, I still actually listened to it. So yeah, I think I, it, it came out pretty well. Yeah, it's uh, of the Boiled and Lead albums, I actually think it is one of my favorites and probably one of the ones that I play the most often. Well, I'm very, I'm very happy about it. I'm, I'm very pleased. It was a, it was a, it was a unique, frustrating, uh, rewarding, uh, interesting, uh, unhealthy experience recording that album. Uh, we actually did it. I think that was, yeah, that was the one. I actually recorded it and mixed it in, I think, 10 days, uh, which is pretty ridiculous, except Robin did his uh, did his full kit stuff, actually, with uh, um, up at his own cabin, and then we put it together. But that was working with uh, a guy named Tommy Roberts, who, who also... Uh, engineered the uh another way to travel by cats laughing and i think this is the 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 project that finally made him say you know i'm sick of doing studio stuff i'm gonna make uh i'm gonna change my name to zachary vex and make guitar pedals which he did uh, <laughs> and did very well for himself but i would i would come home at about uh at, usually at about dawn or six or six or seven in the morning maybe eight nine in the morning I'd kind of take off clothes as I walked up to the bedroom. I'd fall asleep. I'd, alarm would go off. I'd get up at quarter to 12, put my clothes back on in reverse order, and and uh, head off to the studio uh, for another, you know, 18, 19, 20-hour session. So we did the whole thing because I was recording it, had written it, was singing it, uh, was producing it, was engineering it with Tommy, uh, it was entirely my baby, so it was. Uh, it it hurt me.
It's uh, it's one of those, I guess, packages that's kind of you know kept stayed with me for ever since I first uh, encountered it because up to that point I'd never heard of the idea of a book having a soundtrack. I've done another at a much smaller level, um, but there's a book called Pay the Piper, uh, which is a young adult book that I did with my mom. Uh, that was actually the first first book I ever had published, full book. Um. And it uh, won, I think, the 2006 Locus Award uh, for Best Young Adult Novel that year. And it's a song, it's kind of a retelling or a modernization or an explanation of the Pied Piper story, where the Pied Piper is actually a uh, an exiled prince of fairy who has to uh, pay a tithe to fairy every seven years. Um, and it has to be in uh, in gold or souls and so and he's you know he's a musician so he's constantly broke and getting screwed over by producers so he has to send souls on but there's a bunch of you know now he's so he's in a band now it's in modern times uh so there's some songs associated with him and i think i'll probably put them out on my uh on my patreon soon as i do a lot of music on there but i recorded a couple of the songs for that uh, so the songs that were in the in the book did a couple of those, got to work with a uh, local Irish uh, flute player who's absolutely insane, uh, but is a, a magnificent flute player. Actually, I have to double check. I think uh, that may have been one of the books that we picked up from a little library just recently. Like every author, I have a complicated uh, relationship with used bookstores and people giving away my books. Yeah. Also, I love going to little libraries and the library and used bookstores yeah. and buying <laughs> used books. So it's... It's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I just hope I just hope it's not one I've signed to someone I know. That's no. that's, that's <laughs> actually the worst. <laughs> Dear so and so, you mean so much to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's gone to the point where uh, my wife now knows if we ever see uh, anything with Jane Yolen in it to grab it for me. <laughs> well, there's plenty of them up, out there. She's now over 400 books. Yeah, I've got a very small um, portion of her prolific writings. Yes, yeah. I, I I always tell people, it's funny, it, I, 
So I've done some self-publishing now. I've self-published two novels, a third one coming out. So including the two novels, I've got 11 novels out. So nine traditionally published, two self-published, sold a a dozen short stories, uh, three graphic novels. Um, I'm missing something. Oh, it's a a dozen music books. Um, it's a, a bunch of different stuff, which in another family would make me a wildly successful, uh, writer. And yeah. in my family, it puts me, <laughs> it puts me third because my sister is over 30 books and, yeah. and a couple of them have won a bunch of awards. So she's got 30 books and a half dozen awards. And I'm sitting here with my measly 11 and one award. And I'm thinking, ah, geez, you know, I should. You know, I should dig ditches. This is ridiculous. I'll never make it as an author. <laughs> How much of uh, your mother's uh, writing is present, I guess, in uh, the way that you write music? It is... Uh, so obviously, you know, she's a folklorist. It is It is hard to avoid. Uh, it's, you know, it, I am, you know, I am a proud son of, uh, of, of Jane Yolen, and a lot of it, a lot of stuff does come through. Uh in the folkloric voice, in the you know, in the in the the fairy tale voice, the kind of uh, epic uh, voice like that. I mean, that's you can draw a pretty straight line uh, from me to my mother. Um, you know, it's it's hard to avoid, uh, and I don't and I don't try to. She's an excellent stylist, and and the first book I wrote was with her, and a lot of it was conscious imitation of her style um mostly to so that the book flowed correctly you know but it's also like taking a master's class where there's not a lot of instruction but you get your stuff back you know uh completely edited uh, line edited and you go okay why did she make these changes you know what what is different from what i wrote and what has come back edited it you know and i could ask questions but it wasn't uh, you know we were working and we had a we had a time schedule uh, and the same with the songwriting, but in a in a lot of ways, uh, it's very different as well. I have very I have a much darker and more cynical uh, um, mindset and worldview. Um, you know, I lived a very different life uh, than my mother. I I left home. You know, it, it kind of took a couple of years, but I left home at sixteen. Uh, you know, kind of functionally homeless for about six months. Um, a lot of my friends, uh, were, you know, in and out of prison and rehab and, um, you know, traveling with bands, uh, you know, just you in a van and no money for months at a time. Uh, it's very different from, uh, you know, from her, from her life. So, you know, the characters in my, uh, in my stories and songs, uh, tend to come from a very different, uh, background and place. Uh, than her, but it's definitely an amalgamation. I have a little story about how um, uh, how growing up with Jane Yolen as your mother trains you to be a writer, uh, whether you want to be or not. I'd love to hear it. A lot of kids uh, keep journals as as young people, um, some more so than others. But I feel like not everyone gets their nine year old journal uh, returned to them. Uh, the next morning edited in red ink and with prompts for the next day's entry. <laughs> so I, 
I always say I had a fairly Skinner-esque uh, training in the art of writing, and it explains kind of why I went uh, went the other direction for so many years, uh, you know, uh, before finally, um, finally um, starting to write professionally, you know, and uh, it was, uh, uh, yeah, so that's, that's my life. <laughs> it's a... It's a it's a mixed bag. Oh, I can imagine uh, growing up with a writer, you know, because you always expect kids to rebel against the things that you know you enjoy. So I can only imagine, you know, what my kids are going to wind up doing. Probably become you know staunch conservatives. I have two kids now, nineteen and twenty three, and I'm very lucky in that their their rebellions did not uh, take that form. Uh, in fact, the oldest has just. Um, signed a contract for their fi first picture book uh, called Kiki Kicks. And they have a, they have a, uh, a bachelor's degree in creative writing, or as they say, um, a, a degree in making shit up. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you wrote a graphic novel. Uh, uh, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, three of them. Actually, that was one I wrote with, uh, with my mom. They're called the Stone Man Mysteries. Came out with Learner, I think. Uh, it was a very fun idea. We wanted to do something in uh, Edinburgh because uh, we both love Edinburgh. My mother actually lives in uh, St. Andrews, which is about 45 minutes uh, by car or train north of uh, Edinburgh. And so we set this in the 30s in Edinburgh. Um, and it's a uh, kind of a noir mystery, um, kind of uh, Nero Wolf, in that the main detective um, cannot leave his little area because he is in fact a gar uh, a uh, gargoyle, and so and he has a so so the two the main characters are the gargoyle who uh, does all the solving, and the kid who's playing the role of Archie in Nero Wolf. Uh, a, a street kid, Edinburgh street kid, who first actually goes up, uh, goes up to the church, top of the church, and meets the gargoyle because he's gone up there to fling himself off, in in despair. And the so it's it's very dark, but it's also you know it's 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 young adult, um, and then there's three of them, and uh, you know murder and mystery in 1930s Edinburgh uh, with uh, a gargoyle. Well, it sounds like it's right up my alley. Let's go take a look for that. Excellent. Yeah, it was it was very interesting uh, working with my mother on graphic novels and also written a picture book with her called uh, Crow Not Crow, uh, which is a bird watching picture book. Uh, it's very uh, it's a very different way of writing. It's very interesting because you have to th you're, you're writing, but you have to think visually. Um, but but you are not actually uh, in the picture books. You're not giving actual direction uh, to the artist, and then in the um, in the graphic novel, you are. It's a very very interesting how much they differ in the in the particulars. I'm very much a process nerd, so I very I like working in these different genres and types and learning the the in and outs both of the of the the kind of genre tropes, but as well as the technical specifications then you work through. I'm one of those guys who, when writing, likes, likes limitations. It keeps me on track, forces me to be creative. 
Oh, the other thing I, I didn't mention about what I think gives me a, a very different uh, view of things uh, than my mother, and it's something I've always talked very freely about, which you didn't uh, really, you know, 20 years ago when I got uh, diagnosed, uh, but I have uh, severe depression and anxiety attack disorder and uh, uh, severe to moderate ADHD, uh, which is a, a fun little cocktail, to, and it was not diagnosed till uh, so my we're... late 30s. So it was very much an adventure growing up in the 80s with uh, undiagnosed uh, depression. And, uh, you know, being a, a smart, being a smart kid with a drug problem, you're, you're not depressed. You're a delinquent in the 80s. That's that was the word for it. <laughs> I had a very interesting time with both my kids um, who uh, got a touch of depression and in one of them a whole lot of anxiety. Um, and actually you know, uh, getting them medicated when they were about 12 years old. Uh, and it was interesting because even me, who, you know, anytime someone says, you know, what would you tell your younger self? I'm always like, get medicated, you know, get diagnosed, get medicated, which, you know, in the 80s, we had neither the, the drugs nor the vernacular to even talk about what was going on. But even me, when it came time with the kids who had been diagnosed and everything, my wife still had to kind of talk me into it. You know, because there's still that resistance of they're so young. And honestly, you know, it saved their lives. You know, and they had, a, you know, they had a tough time of it because like the, the medication helps. It doesn't cure. You still got to do the work yourself. But it was, you know, I still had resistance to it till my wife said, don't you remember you always told me that, you know, 12 years old is about when things started to fall apart for you. I'm like, yeah. She says, "Well, let's let's not put our children through that. How about that?" I'm like, "Oh, well, that's a that's a pretty <laughs> good idea." It's funny how they sometimes have the better ideas, eh? Uh, sometimes that's being that that's that's being very generous to me to <laughs> say sometimes. <laughs> I do a panel quite often at uh, at conventions because I pitch it almost every time. Um, and it's a panel call that I call um, uh, depression and art or mental illness and art. Can you still create once you're cured? Uh, we get some really uh, pretty good, lively discussions. And I've had some, you know, I had some great uh, panelists talking about that. And on the last panel I did with this, I actually um, was doing, uh, uh, you know, the research I always do. It's not, you know. Because I'm a writer, it's not enough to just live it. I got to research it too, uh, and they have actually now, you know, kind of officially um, uh, determined in a number of stories that there is a correlation between creativity and mental illness. There's still not, there's not close to, to to proving a causal link, but it's one of those, you know, you. You always thought your artists were all crazy. Turns out you're right. <laughs> you know, not not crazy, but the but the the correlation between especially uh, depression and bipolar uh, and creativity is definitely there. So to have fun, creative kids, you you often have to deal with the uh, uh, with the other side of it as well.
just indirectly out of the corner of my nose It smelled like last year's lover in our brand new suit of clothes It stank to me like dying things left out too long in the street And I swear I turned to walk away when I said let's go get a bite to eat somebody's head Now shotguns may often when a pinch of seed might just ensure the conversation is dead If wishes were horses mine would just show and I bet the perfecta for blood The five dollar tickets mark my trail in the desert that with water would just turn into mud So getting back to music, uh, you just recently released a uh, new album, Three Solid Blows to the Head, um, which is available, of course, on Bandcamp. Not, it is, uh, I just released it on Bandcamp. The album itself is decades old. Okay. It is, I just, I am a slow, I am a slow adopter of anything that, um, might either get my stuff out to other people or make me any money. I am it's, it's long been my curse. Um, no, that's my. But I, you know, it's an old album, 
but it still stands up as far as I'm concerned. It stands up today. Uh, and in, in, in some ways, I'm a bit reduced these days in my, in my mid-50s. And I had a lot of... Uh, uh, I, I, I don't... Uh, I'm not as good a player as I was when I was playing five, six nights a week. You know, I and I just don't have the uh, I don't have the the uh, I don't have the manic drive anymore, which is much healthier. But when I was you know undiagnosed uh, an undiagnosed uh, drunken uh, drug addict, uh, you know I would play for twelve fourteen hours at a stretch. I would go you know we'd play a gig and and play another one. We did you know. I think our best stretch was once was 11 shows in 10, 10 days uh, in 10 different cities. Um, so, you know, it's bad for your bad for your mental and physical health, but it's great for your chops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, but three, th- three solid blows was, was the uh, three solid blows to the head was my uh, solo album. Um, right. Uh, you know, it was towards the, towards the end of boiled and lead. Uh, so it was really very much kind of a breaking breaking away from that uh, that slow motion car crash, um, and uh, it's one of those albums. If you don't like this song, just wait a minute. It's got a, you know, I unashamedly uh, put all my influences on display. So there's there's blues, there's hard rock, there's there's psychedelic stuff, there's folk, there's punk. You know, it's got uh, it's got kind of everything on it, and it was all we uh, me and the engineer synced two uh, sixteen track analog decks together. To so we had you know the actual the actual real tapes, four of them going at once. Um, uh, so for 30 tracks of analog madness and then we we're doubling up on stuff and it was just insanity and we'd have them off and playing backwards tracks and you know slowing them down with our finger and just absolute uh, madness at all steps of the, of the way um, I smash a uh, doombeck with a 10 pound sledge on one track Okay, that was very uh, cathartic there's <laughs> <laughs> a lot going on <laughs> And so, and uh, I got Lojo in, Lojo in to sing backup from Cats Laughing. Um, hired a great rhythm rhythm section that just do uh, fantastic. Leo the Whitebird, the engineer, plays a little slide, and then I played everything else: uh, B three organ, uh, road stage piano, mandolin, congas, drums, eighteen different types of flavors of guitars. It was. Uh, it, it was, was a lot of fun. Album, I gotta say, thank you. I am I am very proud of that one. Uh, right now, I'm actually I'm actually doing a lot of home recording uh, that I put up on my uh, Patreon. Some of it is stuff that's uh, new songs I've written. Some some of it is just wildly experimental stuff that uh, my wife not so fondly call fondly calls sound shapes. <laughs> From the, uh, if you remember the yeah, old Kids uh-huh. in the Hall sketch oh, yeah. comedy show, there was one sketch. There was one sketch called Bobby versus Satan, and it starts with Bobby out in his garage, and he says, "I was experimenting with something I like to call sound shapes," and then he's just, Bee! 
So we got some of that going. So I'm and I'm actually considering uh, whether I'm going to compile all that and and uh, tweak some of it up into a into a new album. But I'm uh, a ways away from that. But yeah, I'm experimenting with the. I'm, I've written now and recorded two things. I'm calling triptychs because they're kind of experimental pieces uh, in uh, in kind of three movements, and um, it's. Uh, it's some pretty wacky stuff. I quite like it. One of them actually, the latest one is up uh, up for free uh, on my Patreon. So anyone who's looking to to listen to you know eight minutes of of uh, of musical strangeness, um, and even if you can't tell, there's a steady beat runs through the whole thing. But uh, in this particular one, but that's the kind of kind of strangeness. Where I'm can doing. people find you on Patreon? Patreon.com slash slash Adam Stemple. Very easy, very easy to find. I'm, uh, I have, I actually, my big point of pride, I have uh, my own Wikipedia page. So I'm kind of, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm kind of a big deal. I have it open on the other screen right now. Excellent. And they no longer have me listed as Jane Yolen's husband, which is very nice of them to not do that anymore. <laughs> that was... That was that was not good. That was so. That's my that's the that's the high and low of my Wikipedia experience. No, so Adam and I got a website at adamstemple.com because you know it's not enough to be a writer and musician. I'm a web designer as well, so because I have a, a fierce dislike of honest work. So, I, in the last. Now, in the last now, Jesus, nearly, nearly 40 years, I have worked <laughs> five years at Target, which I quite, I quite liked, but then the All pandemic right. hit. And... Well, you know what? I think we're going to wrap that up right about here, because that seems like a pretty good place to stop. So, Adam, thank you so much for coming out. Really enjoyed having you. It's been a great, great conversation. My pleasure. Once again, I'd like to thank Adam Stemple for coming on the show today. If you'd like to hear more of Adam's music, you can find his music at adamstemple.bandcamp.com. You can also find him on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash adamstemple. You can also find his website at adamstemple.com. So thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll see you again.